Chapter Fourteen, Part Two of The Man with the Black Cord by Augusta Groner, translated by Grace Isabel Colbron. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mueller and Carl go on a journey. Continued. Well, what's your report? asked Mueller as Carl sat down opposite him. The young man gave him a detailed account, reciting word for word what had happened since he and the doctor set forth on their trip the evening before and everything that had been said between them. He showed Mueller the papers and the money which had been given him. The veteran detective took charge of both. There was only one document of importance, an official paper stating that the physician and house owner, Sergius Maximoff, had been a member of the community of Inzersdorf for six years. Mueller was not surprised at the important points in Carl's report. He knew already that there was something wrong in the doctor's past, and now he felt certain that it was not a political matter. There must be some other reason why Maximoff did not dare return to his own country. The remark, that is very good for you also, that Maximoff had made to Karl, seemed to corroborate Mueller's suspicions. What would have happened if Karl, once started on this mysterious journey, had not been willing to agree to any schemes the other should unfold? In all likelihood, he would never have returned to Austria, would have disappeared somewhere en route. Was it not possible that Maximoff intended to let him disappear when he handed him the papers in Oswienchim? Was it for this reason that an obscure little town near the Polish frontier had been chosen for a meeting that might just as well take place anywhere else along the route, or better than all, in Vienna? A great many things can happen in these obscure little Polish towns. A stranger, particularly when registered under a false name in a hotel, can disappear and never be heard of again. Mueller thought of all this and remembered the peculiar fleeting change in Maximoff's face the evening before when the Russian was alone in the corridor. The travelers took a short rest in Warsaw. When they entered the train to continue their journey to Riga, Mueller had already laid aside his false beard and wig. They spent the night in Riga, and the next day about noon they arrived in the little county seat of Wenden. They took rooms in the best hotel in the place, freshened themselves up a bit, ate dinner, and then walked over to the principal square of the town to make inquiries in the main post office for the address of Dr. Sergius Maximoff. But there was no Dr. Maximoff in this little town of about 5,000 inhabitants. The friendly official behind the window, an elderly man who had served at his present post for many years, told them he was quite certain that in all the city of Wenden there was only one Maximoff, and this was not Sergius Maximoff, but Andreas. Also, he was not a doctor but an elderly retired government official who lived with his wife on the edge of the town near the great park belonging to the palace of Count Sievers. But the postmaster remembered now that some years ago letters were sent to Pretoria in Africa. Yes, it was Pretoria, letters addressed to a Dr. Maximoff. He supposed this to be the son of Andreas Maximoff. Letters had come from this faraway son, and he had noticed them because of the postage stamp. But it was some years since any of these letters had come and in fact, as far as the official knew, the correspondence had stopped altogether. This was all he could say about the matter, and it was all that Mueller wanted to know. The worst contingency, the possibility that the real Sergius Maximoff was alive and in his home, had not occurred. The only danger now was that there might be a certificate of his death in existence in Wenden. This possibility did not worry Mueller much. He knew that he would be able to cope with it, as he had funds at his disposal and his own quick wits to rely upon. It was his intention really to obtain the papers for Maximoff, 
even if they would never be used in the way the Russian wanted to use them. They would be ready for Carl to hand to him in Osvienchim as arranged. Mueller was very anxious to know what would happen then, and he did not intend to lose the opportunity of finding out. Possibly nothing would happen at all. It may have been a mere chance that this obscure little town was chosen as the meeting place. Maximov had to stay away from his home for a certain length of time anyway, as those he left behind supposed him in Russia. He would have to meet his representative somewhere along the line of the journey, so why not Osvienchim as well as any place? Whether this was the case, or whether Mueller's darker suspicions were justified, well, he would be on hand if necessary to protect the young man whom he had sent forth on this mysterious errand. And now, said Mueller to his pupil as they left the post office, what would be your next move? Why, I think that even if the government offices are open at this hour and the papers could be obtained, it would be better not to go there first, but rather to make the journey to the outskirts of the city to the park of Count Sievers answered Carl. Quite right. And then I would have a chat with Mr. Andreas Maximov if I could find the gentleman at home. Quite right, repeated Mueller. That would be the best thing to do. But now, as I am taking for granted that you will have more interest in looking about you in a strange town than I have, suppose you play the part of a distinguished tourist today and take a stroll through this place with your Baedeker very much in evidence. I will meet you in our hotel at seven o'clock. There's no need for more than one of us to call upon Mr. Andreas Maximov. Mueller handed Carl the red-covered book, raised his hat, and walked on down the street. It was not a long walk to the outskirts of the little town. One or two inquiries along the way, and Mueller soon found the park, and the home of the elder Maximov, at its gate. It was a pretty little house, set in a pretty little garden. Its walls were gray with age, and its overhanging roof, darkened by wind and weather of decades, made it look like some old bird spreading out its wings and crouching close to the ground to escape the cold. A couple of fine old pine trees towered above it, and although it was still October, the frost lay thick on the ground in this northern land, and the attractive scenery wore its winter dress. Mueller rang the bell, and when the door was opened by a simple-looking peasant woman, he asked if he might see Mr. Maximoff. The card he handed the girl bore the name of George Munzer. The master of the house, a comfortable-looking elderly gentleman, wrapped in a voluminous woolen dressing-gown, came to meet him cordially. Mueller announced himself as an Austrian, who had been a college-mate of the old gentleman's son in Vienna twelve years before. He had found himself in Wenden on business, and stopped in to see Sergius, in case the latter might be at home. The old man shook his head sadly. He could not tell his visitor, he said mournfully, whether his son was still alive even. Sergius had been lost to him for many years. No news had come of his fate anywhere. The last he knew was that his boy had gone to South Africa to the Boer colony, and then he had heard no more. Mueller's sympathy with the kind old man's sorrow was quite genuine, and was so soothing to his host that the latter was evidently anxious his visitor should remain for a more lengthy chat. Interesting strangers from elsewhere, particularly those who had known his son, were a rarity in old Maximoff's quiet existence. Fortunately for Mueller, however, the garrulity of old age, and of those who live in the country, was stronger than the natural interest to hear tales of the college life of his lost son. The old man wanted to talk, not to listen. So it was easy for Mueller to get him started on family affairs, on a discussion of his few other relatives. Among these was a nephew by the name of Nikolai Simarenko, 
of whom the old man seemed to have a good deal to tell. What he did say about this nephew was so interesting that Mueller kept the conversation confined to this topic for the rest of his visit, for the better part of an hour, in fact. Twilight had fallen as Mueller returned to the center of town. He walked through the quiet streets, wrapped in the hush of the early northern night, his own thoughts spreading a cloud about him heavier than the leaden pall on the sky above. When he met Carl and they had retired to their own rooms after supper, he told the story of his afternoon. The recital of what he had learned so excited the young man that he tossed restlessly for the greater part of the night. Before noon the following day, Carl handed Mueller the three documents that were the official reason for their journey. There was no difficulty in getting them, and it was only to hasten the deliberation of governmental procedure that Carl was obliged to expend some of the money Maximoff had given him for the purpose. The two men left Wenden that same afternoon, taking the express to St. Petersburg. But Carl arrived alone in the Imperial City. His patron had given him two days' leave to look about him in this famous town, the second city of importance in the Russian Empire. Mueller himself left the train at Dorpat after arranging that Carl should meet him there on the third day following. Left alone, Mueller went to his hotel and retired early. Next morning, a two-horse carriage which he had ordered was waiting for him as soon as the tardy northern day had broken. Far out into the country he drove, all through the short hours of daylight, past many little villages and wayside lakes, with quiet black waters, over rough wooden bridges crossing streams, already quieting down for their winter sleep, through miles and miles of dreary moorland and gloomy pine forests. Finally, as the sun was already setting in the west, the horses stopped their tireless trot in front of a modest little wayside inn, where Mueller spent the night. Next morning, the journey began again. This time, however, the drive lasted only two hours, then a halt was made at another wayside inn, where the horses were unharnessed and led to the stable to rest, and Mueller went on foot. His destination was a large building, almost a castle in size and appearance, which lay in the midst of a beautiful, wide-stretching park. But in spite of its impressiveness, there was a gloom about the handsome structure. High brick walls and heavy iron gates surrounded the carefully kept park, and on all the windows of the great house, massive iron bars were firmly set in the stone walls. Mueller remained here for a long time. Then he returned to the inn, took dinner there, and drove back to his quarters of the night before. He slept uneasily, waking from time to time, and murmuring incoherent sentences. The old detective chided himself for his distress of mind, for he knew that he should have been greatly satisfied with what he had discovered. He knew that he was about to add another achievement to his record, one which perhaps would be counted among his finest. Then the following day the long drive began again, all through the hours of daylight until Dorpat was reached. By this time the conflict in his heart had calmed down, and he knew that he would do as he had always done, resign himself to the inevitable and accept the success which he purchased with such a wrench to his nerves and to his soft heart. He slept quite well that night, and next morning Carl arrived punctually at the prearranged hour. The young man was fairly bubbling over with the enjoyment of his two days sightseeing in the beautiful Russian capital. Mueller let him have his say about it first, because he knew that what he had to tell would darken his young friend's mind as it had his own. And indeed it did. Mueller told his story as they sat alone in the compartment on their way to Riga, and Carl sat quiet, subdued, 
and depressed by the terrible narrative. When they reached Riga, they dispatched a telegram at once. The message read, Will arrive tomorrow morning, 8.39. Should recommend immediate continuing of journey. G.M. The telegram was addressed to Adam Kaczynski, Station Hotel, Osvienshim, Galicia. Then the travelers sought a comfortable hotel and did not resume their journey until the following day. They stopped in Warsaw long enough for Mueller to disguise himself as a heavily bearded elderly gentleman. This time, however, his cape overcoat was not light brown, but dark gray. It was buttoned its full length so that a willful breeze could not reveal the fact that its lining was light brown. The majority of Mueller's outer garments were arranged in this way to play a double part. The hair, beard, and hat he wore now had all quite another color than those in evidence on the hitherward journey. His eyes were covered with smoked glasses, and it would have been quite impossible to recognize him as the white-haired tourist on the Viennese Express two or three days back. When they were on the last stretch of their journey, Mueller rose from his seat, gathered up his luggage, and said, Now, my dear Tunner, I shall have to leave you to yourself. It is a difficult game you will have to play, a game in which your very life may be at stake. You must carefully calculate every word you say, every expression of your face, and be ready for even the most cleverly put questions. If this man gets the faintest suspicion that you know about his past, then your life is in the greatest possible danger, even if you do not leave the train in Osvienshim. I will be in the next compartment, but even then, if he knew the truth, I might not be able to reach you soon enough to save you. He pressed Carl's hand warmly and went into the next compartment, which already bore a placard reserved on its door. As the train drew in, Maximoff stood on the platform, his luggage carried by a porter behind him, ready for the journey. George Munzer waved his hat from the door of the train. Everything all right? cried Maximoff as he saw him. Everything all right, answered the young man. Come aboard. I have a reserved compartment. Maximoff jumped on the train, paid off his porter, arranged his luggage, and then shook his employee's hand warmly. Your wish is fulfilled, said Munzer. Settle yourself comfortably, and I'll tell you my story and give you the papers. Did you have any trouble? Maximoff was so eager to ask this question that he did not even wait to take off his overcoat. Munzer helped him make himself comfortable in the corner of the seat and then handed him the documents and the rest of the money. He reported that there had been no trouble about two of the papers, but that the usual bureaucratic deliberation had made it necessary for him to wait three days in Wendin before he could come into possession of them. He had utilized his spare time in a careful inquiry as to whether Sergius Maximoff had returned home or whether it was known that he were married or dead elsewhere. When the three days had passed, he got the papers. But there had been a lot of red tape and bother about it, particularly about the fact that Maximoff had not come himself or taken the usual political routine through the consulate. In short, I had to dip into your purse a bit and relieve it of some of its contents, the young man concluded, but you were ready for that contingency, and the main thing is that you have your papers. And a great burden is lifted from my mind, said the doctor cheerfully. I cannot tell you how happy it makes me. Thanks, hearty thanks, that you carried out the affair so cleverly. Here is the money you were to receive for your services. But now tell me, why did you want to continue the journey at once? Why didn't you want to stop overnight in Osvienshim? Why, I suddenly remembered that if I went right on, it would give me time to stop off at Prerau and visit dear friends of mine whom I haven't seen for some time. Business calls me back to Vienna, but if I saved twenty-four hours now, I would still have a little time with them. That was a good idea, observed the doctor. Then we will part in Prerau. Forever, probably. 
"'That will be entirely as you wish it, sir,' replied Munzer, modestly. Then they lit their cigars and chatted for a while about indifferent subjects. But Carl noticed that Maximoff seemed uneasy about something. Knowing what he did, it was not difficult for him to guess what was troubling the other. He was anxious to get the dangerous moment over with, so he began himself to speak of the subject that might lead to the question he was waiting for. He began to talk of Wendon, what a quaint little town it was, and how there wasn't much to see there, but that the country was pretty, and that the days spent there had not been unenjoyable. Then he paused, puffed lazily at his cigar, and waited. The doctor made some remarks about Wendon, then continued casually. Oh, by the way, didn't you say that as you were making inquiries about Sergius, you learned that his parents still lived in the city? Yes, that's what they told me in Wendon. Well, then, it seems to me that a simpler method of getting the information you wanted would have been to visit the old people and ask about their son. Surely, replied Munzer, that was my intention. But Andreas Maximoff was on a trip to St. Petersburg, was not expected back for a week or two, and his wife was ill in bed. Under the circumstances, I thought it better not to disturb the old lady, particularly as I gathered all the information necessary from other sources. Yes, that's true. It was quite unnecessary. You are right. The relief he could not control gave a brightness of tone to Maximoff's voice and cleared the shadow from his face, the look of anxious cunning from his eyes. Carl, on the watch for every little sign, recognized this and felt a corresponding ease at his own heart. He was not lacking in courage, but he knew that if he failed to recognize the proper moment or to give the right answer to this question, even the few years of youth in which he had the advantage of Maximoff might have availed him little against the other's remarkable quickness of brain and physical strength, and against his almost devilish ingenuity in mischief. The parting in Prairau was most cordial. Maximoff remained at the window of his compartment, waving his hand to the young man, who himself stood on the platform until the train was out of sight. Left alone, Maximoff took out the documents again and read them through. A tender smile illumined his eyes and curved his lips. As he put the papers back into his pocket, he murmured gently, Suzanne, my darling Suzanne. His heart was light and free. A thousand rosy visions flashed through his brain. Life was opening out before him at its fairest. And yet only a thin partition lay between him and his fate. For in the next compartment sat Joseph Mueller. End of chapter 14